0: Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Heidi White. Angelina, Heidi, welcome back to the show.
1: Oh, thanks, David. Good to be back.
0: <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a whole week.
1: <laughs> it's been like 10 minutes.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so we are here to discuss um, the beginning, the first three chapters of part two of Wallace Stegner's novel, Crossing to Safety. Before we get to that, though... Of course, we have some things that I need to mention. There's a new podcast on the Poetry Podcast Network. What? It is called The Daily Poem. So, if you want to have three to five minutes of poetry delivered to you daily, read by me and other people eventually once they have time to do so, um, then you should subscribe. You can go to iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Podcast, uh, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can subscribe and have that delivered to you. Free of charge every day. We have done poems like let's see what have we done. roger Kipling. We did poem by Rudyard Kipling. Today we'd... it
1: was the Lake Isle of Innisfree, the that's nine right. bean Rose That was today. Oh, I yeah. listen to it every
0: day. Nice. Okay, so that's that was today. I I lose track because I record them. I tend to not record them every day. That's like seems like a complete waste of time. So I record them in batches and then we then we put them up. Um, We've done Kipling. We've done. I know there's. uh, We've done some Poe. We've done a Shakespearean sonnet. There's lots of great stuff. The thing is, it turns out there are a lot of good poems out there in the world. Is is that right? So (laughs) it's not that difficult to find one. It's just difficult to choose which ones should go when and which pattern. Um, It's only a matter of time before someone complains that there's a different poem every day. So I'm I'm bracing myself. but, you should um, put it
1: in the name. How about a different <laughs> daily poem every day No, I think you should test who's really
3: listening by throwing in a few repeats.
0: <laughs> well, we <we've> thought <laughs> about doing like some poem every day, just if it deserves it or something. Or like some poems obviously have long stanzas or many stanzas rather. So maybe do a longer poem that has five stanzas and do five stanzas in a day. But on the first day, read the first stanza. On the second day, read the first two stanzas on the third day, read the first three, and so on and so forth. You get the general gist of what I'm describing. Um, right. Unless I need to do the fourth and fifth day for you just to make it completely clear.
3: I, I'm is, a little confused, but okay. continue. This is not <laughs> uncommon in my life.
0: <laughs> so if you want to get that show, uh, Heidi, what would you say is the benefit of that show? Like why should people, It's because it's clearly not my reading ability.
1: Well, nobody is saying that. You're a good reader. Uh, it is, I th- it's the Charlotte Mason idea of listening to a poem every day. I like the fact that my kids and I are listening to someone else, not just us, read a poem. Um, <laughs> yeah,
0: I've heard that. That's the yeah, number one I think thing. It's great. I don't. People listen. Kids listen to poetry more when it's not me reading it. Well, not like this is challenging for me to express because I am the one reading it. But people say that it's better to have me read it than to have them read it as far as their kids are concerned.
1: Well, and that's true. And as you pointed out before, reading out loud is itself an interpretive act. And so even listening to the way that you read, even if we're also reading that same poem or have read it before, it's different. Particularly that came up when you did the that Robert Frost with The Road Less Traveled. My kids said, oh, that's I didn't picture it being read that way. And so anyway, I I think it's great. And just starting the day with poetry, uh, we listen to a couple of short podcasts in the car on the commute to my son's school every day. And that just, I think, uh, is formative to the mind and to the soul. So keep it up. It's great.
0: Thanks. The other show, of course, is The Play's The Thing, also here on the Post-Reads Podcast Network. Right now, we are going through King Lear. Uh, up next is Much Ado About Nothing, and following that is Henry V. So, yes, can, and also, can I am
3: I allowed to say publicly that I'm going to be yeah, on the Much Ado you
0: podcast? Can. I'm yeah.
3: excited about that.
0: So, we're a couple weeks away from that. We got um, this week is Act Three of Lear, and then obviously after that comes Four and Five, since we've established patterns of counting already. Um, so, in about a month or so, we will. Um, we'll be doing um, much Ado about nothing. So yeah, Angelina's going to be on. I will say one.
3: that I'm a little nervous because I look on the Facebook page and it seems like there's a bloodbath going on on that show and I'm just I'm not into <laughs> that. So nobody better be stabbing me. It's a <laughs> we, comedy. There's no doing stabbing. A comedy,
0: right. Well, well, I don't know. That play has some sort of like stabbing. It's a it's the most stabbing in a Shakespearean comedy. Most <laughs> metaphorical stabbing anyway. Well,
1: well, true to that? I'm doing Henry the 5th, so I'm prepared for the stabbing.
3: For I'm ready. <laughs> the
0: actual stabbing. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I do not fight
3: over literature. I withdraw with dignity and leave you to your nonsense. That there, is my strategic.
0: There is a thing though where there's a there's a recurring thing where Shakespeare has a lot of stabbing in it, just generally speaking. So it's hard, the place, the thing is just a place where you're going to get stabbed. Um, That's
3: the subtitle of the show.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Come so to be-
3: your daily stabbing.
0: Well, weekly, but yeah. Week- if we're, weekly. Unless you're listening repeatedly, which we are in favor of, of course. Um, so yeah, The Play's a Thing, The Daily Poem, the regular flagship show of The Close Reads, which you are listening to right now. And there's a lot of other great content coming soon, which I can't say too much about. But if you like all these shows, please subscribe, please rate, please review. And if you're so inclined... Please also support us through Patreon over at patreon.com slash close reads. That's all I'll say about that for now. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting us. Um, we have some great swag. So if you want some swag because everybody needs more swag, then you can head over there and, you know, support the show. That's it. Let's talk, let's talk about um, crossing the safety now. So we're into part two. Part two begins by bringing us back to the beginning of part one. Um, I want to compare the opening chapters of each part. Before we do that, though, before we get to that activity, shall we say, I have a question. And this question is as follows. What is this book about? <laughs> I was thinking about this, um, and I was reading some some things about Stegner because I, I find him kind of a fascinating guy. Um, so I was reading some things about it, and I found that in multiple places people were essentially expressing what this book was about in um incompatible well, not incompatible but in very different ways they were expressing this book. one person expressed that this book is about uh something and the other person expressed that it's about something else so i got to thinking mm-hmm. can, do we agree about what this book is actually about now that we're this far into it i mean obviously once we get to the end we might have a different expression of that but i'm wondering if we have between the three of us have a consensus on what we think this book is about. Um, And and what I don't mean is, let me put it this way. I don't mean that this book is about like, we could say this book is about friends and figuring out how to be friends and what that looks like. That's not what I mean. Like, I don't, I mean, like what's the sort of, what is the core? What is the soul of this book? Um, Like, I don't mean the Lake Island is free is about a guy going to like a nice place to relax. There's, hmm. there's, there's like something more central, more at the core of what this book is about. And I'm wondering if we can, if we express that in different ways. So Heidi, I'll let you go first and then I'll jump over to Angelina. Um, sure. So okay. go ahead.
1: Okay. So I've been thinking a lot about this very question and I didn't know you were going to ask that, but I have notes that I have jotted down over the course of reading these chapters this week. And uh, in the, I think it's in the introduction at the beginning of this book, um, the writer said that this is a a book about what does it mean to love. And I've been thinking and thinking about that in light of this story and wondering if, uh, you know, because I think we've all said, I've never read a book like this before and I absolutely love it. And I think it's because it comes down to that question of what does it mean to love people that you choose, uh, Friendship cool. is in many ways an expendable relationship. Uh, it's one that there's not a blood tie, there's not a sacramental tie, there's not a vow that you've made like you do in marriage. It's not your parents that you uh, love because you're born from them and have known them your whole life, uh, or your children that you cannot help love no matter how frankly odious some of them are. But that
0: <laughs> literally um, and metaphorically,
1: yes. <laughs> that yes. Um, so, but this is a book about. Choosing to love over a lifetime people that you don't have to. That And what that means Hmm. to have a tie with or a bond with people that you continually are choosing over and over again, even when you don't have to, even when they have failed, even when you see their flaws, even when you know that I can walk away at any time. In fact, yesterday I had lunch with somebody and I was talking about a friendship and that person the person I was having lunch with gave me the advice, you know, you don't actually have to be friends with them. You can just walk away. And I thought, well, I don't want to, like I choosing this person like that. And, and in spite of the fact that there may be wounds there or hurt there, like I, I want to see the image of God in this person and to hang in there with them through that. And I think that this book uh, is what that means in, and, and probably the most tenuous human tie, which is mm. friendship.
0: That's a really, that's a really interesting point that, that it's, there is, you know, there's, like you said, there's no vow, there's no blood. There is right. purely, there's nothing even like saying you have to, there's not even hardly, I mean, in some cases, I suppose there's a moral prerogative, but you know, in a lot of cases, it, it, we, there wouldn't be a moral issue if you decided to not be friends with someone anymore um right that's a vague way of putting that I suppose but Angelina what do you think what is your feeling on what this book is about and I guess um not you can respond to her if you want or you can say what you would have thought before if I had asked you first
3: well when you first posed the question I was going to give the answer that you then went on to say is not the answer which was friendship
0: (laughs) (laughs) well and that's uh, kind of what Heidi said so we gotta we'll have to get we'll have to get down to the bottom of of what the difference is between it like well go ahead finish what you're saying and then I'll
3: well I mean and then you rephrase it as what is the soul of this book and uh I think I'm struggling to know what that is what the, what I think it would be far easier for me to list the topics that this book covers than to answer the question what is the soul of this book and what is the soul of this book is my favorite question about a book and thus highlights the frustration i'm having i don't know i'm hoping at the end i'll know but uh, Mm. but i don't know
0: how do you how does one go about identifying the soul like you said that's your favorite question so like what are the ways what i I don't mean like what's the strategy but i guess i kind of mean that but like what is your instinctive process for identifying that when like in a book that you do have a sense for for that
3: I think it reveals itself and that this mm. book is deliberately not revealing it's holding, you know, and I've said before, I have the sense that he's holding it off. So I, I, I am hopeful that there's going to be a payoff at the end.
0: I wonder if, so I'm curious, what do you, when you talk about the soul of the book, what do you mean? Cause this is, again, that's a, that's a kind of abstract term that it's possible in theory that you and I mean different things by that. And I, I don't know that to be true, but I'm I, I would love to figure out if it is true. So when you talk about the soul of the book, what do you mean?
2: Okay,
3: so like, if you asked me what I thought the soul of the it was, I would say it was a deep questioning of the heroic epic, um the heroic ethic of, of the Greek world, that it calls into question all of the things that the warrior culture um, celebrates, that it uh, is an extremely anti-war book. Uh, and so I, I would talk about that, that Homer is undermining everything about the warrior culture. Um and, and being very subversive in that. If you ask me what the soul of the odyssey was, I would say it's about every human being's longing for home and all the obstacles we have to overcome to get there. And the fear that when we get home, it's going to be one more challenge and nothing will come easy. And hmm. so that's what I mean when I talk about the heart, like the, 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 the deep, the deep soul connection, the, the transcendent moment that we're being introduced to, you know, the Iliad is not about two guys fighting over a girl. If it was, right, I, right. why would anybody read that? Right, like it's it's about something else. Hmm.
0: Uh, Heidi, do you is that how you would do, Would you think you'd approach that concept, the idea of like the soul of a book, in a similar way?
1: Yes, I would.
0: Of course, we can now argue about whether that's true of, of the Iliad. Um, do you do you think it's possible, Angelina? F- first, um, for for people. For there to be more than one answer to that question?
3: Oh, yeah. And I think the greater the book, mm. the more mm. answers there could be. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not for a reductionist, simplistic reading of literature. I, I think that's one of the exciting things about literature is that it'll speak to different people in different ways. But mm. it'll still be that sort of underneath the surface larger thing. Right. Mm. I mean, like, I think I think everybody that feels a special bond to any any book whatever their heart book is, feels it because somehow it has gotten beyond the story and above the story and in between the story, right? And it's
0: <laughs> right, gotten right.
3: into their bones and, and has given them some picture of reality.
0: Yeah, the story's taken on a specific life.
3: Yeah, and th- yeah. and I think that that will absolutely be connected to who we are mm-hmm. and where our experiences are. And, and mm-hmm. uh, I think that's also why even in my own life, when I can revisit books decades later, I might have a different answer to the question. Well, what's the soul of this book? Or at least be, uh, maybe, I don't know that I would necessarily contradict it. Um, I mean, let's maybe say that- if I read the Odyssey again, 10 years from now, I really don't think I would be like, take it back. It's not about home. I mean, it's obviously about <laughs> home, but, but the way in which I understand what the journey home means will have mm. become much bigger because mm. my life is bigger and I might see more of what Homer's telling me because I can see more.
0: Mm. So the, the way in which you, how did you say that the way in which you understand that, the way in which you express that?
3: Right. That's yeah. always going to be growing and getting bigger. I mean, I, I went over this with my my high school classes this year, that what that what it means that a book is continually new to us is not that the mm. book ever changes. It's that we're changing. Always we are changing. We are different people every time we come to this book. Different life experiences. We're reading it alongside different things. There are different um, like you know, each of us in our spiritual life, it's almost like God is like pressing a certain bruise at different times of your life. Like, pay attention to this, and then all of a sudden, everywhere you look, right, that's the message. Oh my gosh, uh, you know, yeah. everybody's telling me, you know, be patient or what, you know, whatever it is that God's trying to teach you at that moment, and that happens in books too. Because There's too many
0: constantly. coincidences. I'm gonna die. <laughs> that's how. That's what it's like for you guys, right? Um, <laughs> Heidi, do you um, when you talk. Well, do you, I'll just put it this way: Do you do you empathize with what she's saying?
1: Absolutely, I absolutely do, and I think that sometimes we uh, reading can be such a journey over the course of our lives. Uh, we approach a book, something like the Iliad, maybe isn't the best example of this because the Iliad, the Bible, Shakespeare, there's there are works of literature that are absolutely bottomless, right? Yeah. No matter how many yeah. times we return to them, they those are the great books. They speak to us in our condition no matter where we're at. Uh, and, but there are other books that I've heard it explained, kind of like a shake a, not shake a snake shedding their skin so that you, you you read a book at a time in your life and that kind of skin fits you then. Hmm. But then you might return to it later and you're like, what did I see in that book? Like you yeah. have to yeah. Angelina's point, you have in many ways outgrown it. Uh, or, or it just isn't the right fit for you at that or time and that it. or grown into it. Yeah, exactly. And that is also fine. Um, not every book is bottomless. Not every reading experience is transformative. Uh, we still approach it with humility, but it doesn't, it's, it's not always going to be that same, uh, eternal soul that we encounter. Sometimes it's a temporary one. Uh, but that, yeah, I think that what Angelina said is very well said.
0: I'm kind of fascinated by this concept of a book not being bottomless.
1: Hmm.
0: Because, uh, but that's for conversation for another day.
3: <laughs> oh, I don't know. Is it though? I, I, I immediately thought of what Lewis said like, you know, that if you read something in your childhood and it's special to you, and then you read it again as an adult and it's not, that means it's a bad book. Hmm. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's that? a, that's a, that's a tough one. That's tough for me to sort out the categories. Like, I feel like what meets the level of art in terms of greatness has to be bottomless.
0: I, but I think even even um, Lewis would sort of ex, he'd offer a caveat on that because, <clears throat> I mean, he would also say that we could read it with, we could, we could grow into bad judgment or it could be influenced by our own. Like, you know, he talks a lot about the idea of um, having our feelings, our emotions, be um, be gr- grown, if you will, um, by the things that we're reading, and by then also by our experiences. So, wouldn't don't you think you'd add the caveat that it's possible that we could read something as a child that moves us, and then read as, as an adult. And it might be our fault and not the book's fault that it doesn't move us anymore. Like we could have been no, had no, our I chest agree. removed it, over time. To no, bottom. no.
3: Yes, yes. I was working under the presumption that you're still reading the book well, but yes, he definitely gives the example of adults who despise fairy tales, and it's because they despise childlike wonder. You know, it's right, not a fault right. in the
2: fairy tales. Got it. it's a fault yeah, yeah, in
0: it. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah.
3: No, yeah. I would. I would agree with that. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Um, but
3: I mean, I think. Uh, This might be out of your purview, David, but I I think you know if if there's some woman who remembers fondly at 12 years old reading the Babysitters Club. It's a
2: woman
0: thing.
3: (laughs) Well, I don't know that you read the Babysitters Club. I'm just I'm I'm going on a wild assumption here that you were not like under the covers at 12 with the Babysitters Club and a flashlight. But
0: I I was
2: was not. uh,
3: But you know, if you were, I would presume at some point we would grow up and be like,
1: eh, that wasn't the best. And that would be a a good judgment. Well, and I think sometimes that can happen to good books that are not great books. And I can give an example and you guys can comment on this and, and correct me if I'm using the wrong language here. So I, when I was in college, I read Hemingway and I was like, this is me, right? Like this, this is this angst and this terror and this, like the, This is disillusionment. This is just yes. This lost generation. I am the lost generation. You know, like there's. It's, I remember reading *Farewell to Arms* and just thinking, this is the most profound novel. And then I read it, and it is. It's it's a lovely novel. I read it again last year, and I'm like, what? Oh, these people are just a wreck. <laughs> Get it together. <laughs> so it didn't. It was still a great book and it was still a wonderful experience for me to read, but it it didn't have that same connecting transformative thing that, because I'm, that's just a different stage of life.
0: Do you, there's a different, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Finish, finish. There was a, there was a lag there.
1: There's a, yeah, there's a, a, an emotional connection that I didn't have, which didn't mean I didn't see the novel as good. And that it didn't have something to say but it didn't have that same experience that I have every single time I read Shakespeare or Homer.
0: Well, so it's, it seems like there's three kinds of, um, sort of experiences to reading experiences. I mean, there's probably a lot more, but for the sake of this conversation, and one Mm -hmm. of them is where, or I guess maybe responses is the best way of putting it. One of them is where there's kind of a deep, emotional, uncontrollable, shall we say, um, um empathetic response to the work um where just like it gets in our bones for some reason to you to borrow Mm -hmm. angelina's earlier metaphor um and then there's sort of and i don't mean that this is contrary to that per se but then there's like sort of an intellectual reading of it where we're just kind of making observations of it and i'm being extremely limiting in the language that I'm using here, I understand that. Sure. And then there's a third way, which is kind of in the middle or even that it's not good, but like you could be saying, you could, but you're making observations about it. You're not really empathizing in some way with it or, because that emotional response could also be extremely negative emotion. Um, and then on the third one, it seems like sure. there's a third way, which is kind of going down the middle there where it's both, you're able to be have a sort of intimate, emotional, empathetic response to the work, but also... Um, tied to that, or because maybe tied to that empathetic response is your intellectual um, engagement with the work. Is that this is, fair? This
3: is, These are very, very interesting questions to me. I like these kinds of refining conversations, you know, to try to wrestle with what does it mean for a great book to be great. And uh, as a question that I actually don't think we can answer, but is very worthwhile trying to answer it, right? Um,
0: I think I agree with that.
3: So, Today. so I, lo- I, Today you do. Yeah. I I like, I like these kinds of conversations. So I'm wondering, and again, this is just off the top of my head. So my categories might be wildly wrong, but as I'm listening to us talk, I'm wondering if there isn't a difference between sort of a transcendent meaning and a personal meaning.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, uh, the universal in particular. Yeah, right. Because I could on.
3: definitely see, I could definitely see even in a great book that over time the personal response would change. Like, even, yes. Like, I have read Pride and Prejudice the first time I was 17. I've read it 11 times. I read it at first being like, yeah, my parents are jerks too. And now I'm like, I'm the parent trying to marry off my kids. So, you know, my, <laughs> my, my per-
2: I'm sorry about with that. Kids.
3: I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> like you, you been with these characters for so long, and all of a sudden, you're like, "I'm not the kid in this story anymore." Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yes.
3: And so, the personal reaction absolutely has changed over time, and and what and and um, the characters that make sense to me or don't make sense to me change over time personally. But I think the transcendent value of Pride and Prejudice continues to remain solid.
0: Yes. Mm. So the particular experience. Our, our experience with a book is intimately our, our experience with the particular reading of the book or a specific reading of the book is intimately tied to the particulars of our current situation. Right. But then there's a transcendent meaning or a transcendent experience that can, that can come probably, does that transcendent experience include?
3: I think it can include. The, yes.
0: Does it include the, the um, culminate? So you've read 11 times, right? And each time you read it, you read it with a specific circumstance. Yes. Within a specific circumstance, which then led to a particular experience with that book. So then as we're going, is the transcendent experience that we are having with that or that you're having with that book in, included in that? Is it at the culmination of all those different particular experiences that you're having?
3: It, it must be the culmination. I mean, I think it's happening at the same time, but right. somehow somehow, I think the transcendence got to be steady across. I mean, right, great books cut across time periods and social class and race and cultural mm-hmm. customs like th- you know yeah, we yeah, are yeah. none of us two thousand year old greeks and yet homer speaks to us so th- so there's there's something Hi, that yes. rises above the pati- well obviously one of us had to be but um <laughs> something above it rises above the particular but but <laughs> i would agree that our personal personal connection changes over time
0: yeah hmm.
3: and should it should right yes Yes, it should be. I mean, it'd be Uh, kind of sad if I still read it like a 17 year old girl.
0: Mm -hmm. It's indicative that the book over time has not done any work on you, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. If I'm still trapped in that first time I read it,
3: right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, Heidi?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, this is a great conversation. I think that that's just exactly why there are some books that are great and some books that are good right? There's a continuum of stories. Of course, yes. Mm. And the ones that are enduring are the ones that are foundational to a mind, to a soul, to a, a human person. And those are the ones that you know, we as classical educators, those are the ones that we teach and we refer to. And those somehow make it into all the other books we read. I, I, I've never read even a good book that didn't have some kind of reference to the great mm-hmm. books, mm-hmm. right? Like So yes, I, but I, I would still say that there are some books that aren't bottomless and some that are, for sure. So I, maybe, I still stick there,
3: to that. So maybe there's a spectrum even within the category of, of great was there is there greater great and lesser great I don't, maybe well, what,
0: what so if if something is not bottomless then you have to hit the bottom at some point right and what like at what point do you hit the bottom
1: i don't know i don't know
0: so then it's just a hypothesis you can't prove then
1: it is, yeah. I mean, no, well, this is literature,
3: so... <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder, though, if really anything is bottomless. I mean, I'm thinking about an experiment in criticism, and Lewis says a good reader can even read a bad book well. And yes. see all these amazing things in it that really aren't there because you're a good reader and because you're connecting it to other stories that maybe are just accidentally connected in the book.
0: Is, is it possible that there's something about literature um, and perhaps about all art... By its very nature, I mean, I guess I'm gonna have to contradict you here, Heidi. You can, you can, yeah, counter. No, is it possible? Is it possible that there's something inherent about art that makes it in- in- inherently bottom- bottomless? That even something that's not good, um, because the experience of art is the interaction of the individual soul with the soul of the work
3: there must be something in the synergy of the person and the art right
0: yeah like i love this that's why one of the reasons that i love the the concept of the soul of a work because i think that what happens Mm -hmm. when we fall deeply into a book or when it comes like it's it's taking this metaphor of of a book coming in like a piece of art getting into our bones or even like a place getting into our bones it takes it a step further because it's the intersection of the soul of the work the soul of the place the soul of the book whatever it is and the soul of the person and the, mm-hmm. the point at which those two things intersect and sort of begin to coalesce is something like where you can't separate the two, right? Like right. You, there's not. It's not like two lines running along next to each other that could eventually break off. Once those two things intertwine, once those two souls intertwine, there's no separating them. So I'm fascinated by that concept.
1: Right. I agree with with that completely. And I think when I say that some works are, I, really, it just comes down to, you know aristotle's definition of terms right what do we mean when we say bottomless what do we mean when we say the soul of something so yeah, yeah we're talking uh, semantics. right so yeah exactly so i'll resist the, my dad's
0: semantic joke
1: <laughs> please do we've all heard that so, yeah. um, that uh a work of art can be um, hold on let me think about the, how to say this for a second the thing that is eternal is god so insofar that the artifact the work of art interacts with the eternal through the soul that takes it in right Mm, so mm
2: -hmm.
1: that is to the extent that it can be bottomless or not so something like homer somebody like homer is reaching for that right whereas somebody like hemingway is trying to reduce it but can't like Hemingway's, like I feel like there should be meaning, but I can't find it anywhere, so I'm just going to end my book here.
0: So there's a
1: that's
0: the idea. There, there is the something bottomless in that.
1: Yes, I think that that's some of it. And so I would say Hemingway's good and not great. And again, we're taught we'd have to define terms even more clearly. But Homer is without a doubt great. So when I say bottomless, I think what I mean is to the extent that the work and the reader is interacting and reaching towards eternity. Of course, I think that's inescapable. I mean, we're writing a book on
3: that, so I'm going to have to take the other position. <laughs> but, right. but, I, but I don't disagree that there is some sort of categorical difference between Hemingway and Homer. I don't disagree with you. I'm, right. I'm not sure how I would argue. Wait, your book's going
0: to—is your book going to express the opposite of what she's saying?
3: Right, I think that it's inescapable that books right. deal with the eternal. I think that Hemingway I see, I see, and other guys like that draw this line in the sand and are like, I will not tell the eternal story. And then they do. They do. That's because, actually true. I agree but, with that completely. Right, Because, because they are telling a story and a good story by definition has to have certain things like order <laughs> and meaning. Otherwise you don't have a story. And so the act of writing a story is meaningful and, and demonstrates the meaning that you're trying to reject in the universe. Um, but I don't disagree that there is a, di- uh, some sort of qualitative categorical
1: difference between different types of writers. I'm just not sure how to express it. And is it up to, is it interpretive though? That's, that's the thing that I'm trying to, the question I'm asking, not necessarily a position I'm taking, but is it that to the Christian who has the vision of reality that you're describing, who knows that every work is bottomless, or is it that every work is bottomless in itself ontologically? I would argue that it's it is bottomless ontologically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think
3: that I mean, as we're talking, I think that sometimes these conversations can be so hard because people are making Yell- their personal
0: their, 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 their well, iPhones
3: because yes, because they're <laughs> because they're because they're not separating the personal and the transcendent. So in other words, they have such a strong personal connection to this book that they right. therefore cannot bring themselves to look at it in a different way. Like maybe, like, you know, so there's some, somebody probably, you know, who's cried themselves to sleep with Hemingway for 30 years is listening to this going, how dare you? Hemingway right. is the greatest writer because they were the greatest writer to this person. But that, of course, those are two different questions. And I can't help but think as we talk about this, of, of the, the March Madness votes, right? Like a, the, a lot of the controversy about that really boils down to some people voting on their intense personal connection to a book. and other people trying to take a more transcendent value of art what is the better art Um,
0: one of my favorite film critics jeffrey overstreet he was on twitter the other day and he was talking about um how he said something like if your end of year list for the top 20 movies or whatever is titled these the top 20 the best 20 movies of the year as opposed to my favorite 20 movies of the year yes, because yes. I, I'm out if you say it's my the top 20 because first of all no one can see everything and there's not enough time yet to judge whether or not tr- to truly judge that yet so
3: uh, I know that's why I always love your end of the year list which you're basically like here's some stuff I liked this year like I can respect that list
0: <laughs> yeah right I mean like I I, I I'm also trying, but I think what I'm going to do at the end of this year, for example, is I'm just going to say, this is all the stuff that I watched and this <laughs> is what I liked and what I didn't like, or this is all the stuff that I read because uh, there really is something about, there, there's something about, there is, there is, there is no one person who can make adequate judgments about enough things, who who has the wisdom to make adequate judgments about enough things to determine the, the, the value of, of, all art right <laughs> mm,
2: yeah yeah so
0: like that's one of the reasons why time matters and that's why we have a canon of things that have lasted that have lingered that have been that have not by one person but by many people over many centuries been determined to be worthy of our continued attention um, absolutely
3: absolutely
0: so that's the tr- that's the tradition
3: and to take you know, it back to the book at to the right. book at hand I'm definitely struggling to have the personal connection, but I don't think that that's the paramount thing. I think that I can still at the end say that this is a good book and well done. It was a good piece of art, even if I don't have the personal connection.
0: Yeah, and that's Mm -hmm. where it's and that's where I guess I don't know. Is that what we call like humble reading where you can say there's something going on here? that maybe I don't have an empathetic or emotional response to all the time, but there's something going on here that is, it's like bigger than me, I suppose. Is that a way of putting it? It's like, it's more, it's, there's more going on here than what my feelings suggest. Is that fair? Yeah. Is that that what you're trying to say?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. In fact, Mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps it's timely that this is coming up because I think in our culture, we have, we are like, and you look at the debates over school reading lists across the country, right? That we are primarily, the culture is primarily just talking about the personal connection to the book and not the transcendent. And so it's like, there was no disabled kid in this book. So we can't read this. Or, you know, this person was, you know, Literature loves to give people disabilities right. for symbolic reasons. Um, I mean, right. if you want to have your blindness, you know, if you want to feel good about blind people, don't read literature because it's always a spiritual thing, right? Right. Because um, <laughs> uh, it's a symbol, right? It's not an actual judgment on blind people. It's just a symbol for for literature. But, you know, that's the sort of, we have to ban this book because I, my personal experience is not being reflected in this book, right? And so you got 50 kids in a class and all 50 want to have their personal experience reflected in the book or they refuse to read it. And so we're, we're seeing, you know, reading lists being, you know, getting the guillotine because we're no longer thinking about the transcendent value and that there is a transcendent universal human value, even if my personal experience is not reflected in the book. Mm-hmm. I read a long time ago and I have no idea if this is true, but it was one of these scholarly articles I read that stuck in my head a million years ago, which was that girls find it easier to read books about boy protagonists and relate to that than it works the other way around that it's harder mm-hmm. for a boy to read about a female protagonist and really connect with it than it is for a woman and i just i don't know why that is but it's just interesting
1: hmm. huh that is interesting hmm. huh. i think that that makes sense
0: i'm thinking whether that's true in right. my life in my life
1: me too
2: Anyway, <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm just gonna throw that out there. People can yell about it on
3: Facebook. It was just something interesting I read a long time ago, and I always think about it when, when I always think about that article when these conversations come up of we got rid of this book on our reading list because students couldn't relate to it. I Uh huh. Huh. I love Jaber curl but I'm right? never going to be a bachelor barber in Kentucky. You know, I'm, I'm never like going to be Brad a boy wizard. Right? Yeah. For shame! For shame! I, neither of us will ever I know. know. None of us are well, ever going to be a hobbit on a quest to destroy a ring, but, you know, I digress. Right? <laughs> huh. Well, no, but, that's good.
0: But is that really true?
3: That we won't be a hobbit?
0: <laughs> because ultimately, aren't we all hobbits on a quest to destroy a ring?
3: Well, yes, but that's the
1: transcendent universal exactly. reading. Yes.
0: But if I suppose if you don't believe in... I don't know reality. Then <laughs> you're not going to use reality as a guide for your reading.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's true. So. But uh, but isn't that kind of what's happening in some of these? Well, sure. Yeah, that's
0: what I'm saying. Yeah, like
3: they're like like I don't even know why they want re- kids to read books if it's just I mean just give them all a mirror, right. a well, little mirror, they, right? They just, don't just, really. Well, they don't, and when they do, they all freak out because that's not my experience. Well, guess what, guys? You know the Iliad's not going to be any of your experiences.
1: Right. Well, and that's so. what happens when a culture abolishes the transcendent the universal then you have nothing left but particulars and then everybody has to relate or else they can't get anything out of it and that's the great tragedy it
0: is because it's not well, possible
1: yes. it's not possible if
0: right. the particular does not amount to the universal then you have a whole bunch of particulars that are hanging out together and can't offend each other
1: yeah that's exactly right
0: yes um, and they're, that not, is, they're not adding yeah. up to one thing they're in they're, they're kind of they're kind of like atoms floating around that have no connection to other atoms. Right,
3: and one of the great things that Trying any art bump into does, it, it helps us to transcend ourselves, right? We can see the yes. common humanity amongst mm-hmm. people in different circumstances than our own and to see them as real human beings with real lives and loves and, and losses and, and the whole gamut, even if their life isn't like my life and also it's really good to be reminded that my life my particular circumstances is not necessarily like the real one right and everybody else's is (laughs) fake
1: right
0: yeah i like that that you put that yeah i thought you were going to say the only one but there is a sense in which we do it's so hard to get out of our own well skin out of our own perspective so this feels like everything else around us going on like this you you don't see all the other things going on in the world So oftentimes it feels fake. It feels like it can't. Right. real. It's like a dream out there. And that you're like, when I was a little kid, I used to always be like, what is it like to see the world in someone else's perspective? I was like fascinated Mm -hmm. by the concept of taste or color or things like that. Like, is is what I see? We talk about blue Mm
2: -hmm. and we can
0: recognize the same things as blue. But does that still mean that we see blue as the same things? We know that blue... We both see blue and red as two different things. But when I see blue, is it actually the same things when you see blue? Or, like, when I taste, we can right. say that fried chicken tastes good, but does the taste of fried chicken, the taste of salts on my tongue, taste the same as it does for you? We and both actually, express yes. it as a positive thing. Well, presumably, if you have a soul. and <laughs> But does that, so we, it's a, we both express it as a positive thing. But does it taste literally the same? You
3: see, and I think the food metaphor is very good. And I use this in my classes a lot make the connection between food and art because your enjoyment of food has a lot to do with the cultivation of your palate.
0: Mm-hmm. True. Yeah.
3: And, um, and you can destroy your palate by eating a bunch of sugar. And then things that legitimately, objectively taste good will not taste good to you because the problem is you. Mm-hmm. And we all have been the kid, you know, we all were the kid who wanted, you know, the McDonald's hamburger over the steak. And then you grow <laughs> up and think, oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, also
0: What's at the same me? time, there's there's more, it's more than just like the training of the palate because like there's people who like have a major sweet tooth, you know, like chefs or whatever, That, but that they have trained their mind and their other senses to be able to kind of go past their sweet tooth and the yes. specific things that they're looking for. So I, there's certain things that, that I love despite the fact that I love to eat sugar <laughs> that I can still identify because I've trained, like there's something that's been trained in my mind or yes. I've created. But again, I
3: think, I think there's an analogy there, right? Like you recognized an objective good that didn't match up with your personal experience. And then you try to cultivate that so that right, you could love. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about this book <laughs> specifically. <laughs> I think we've been talking about it. Um, let's compare a little bit of those, these, um,
3: yeah. I like this. Uh, I like this activity. Let's look at that.
0: Of the beginning of chapter one, part one, chapter one, and then part two, chapter two. Let's, I mean, let's just, I don't, I don't mean to like make this into a science thing, but like let's actually just identify some of the things that, that he's doing craft wise that are, that are similar. So if I was in a classroom, maybe I would write this down. So Heidi, can you think of, can you notice something, or did you notice anything that is similar or let's look at similarities first, because I sure. think then the departures that he makes um, or the inversions uh, become more starkly right um, obvious.
1: Well, I think I'll point out the obvious that in both chapter ones in in this novel, they are you have Larry and Sally waiting to uh, waiting to be with Charity and Sid, but it's not happening yet, and they're not sure why. Um, now we have more information in this part in part two, chapter one and there's lots of references um, to what we know now about Charity and Sid her control and management and kind of this disconnection between them and their marriage And but there's some kind of estrangement in the friendship that we have that we don't know yet and it's building kind of this vague sense of uneasiness in me
0: hmm. Angelina, what do you recognize or observe?
3: Uh, the same kind of stuff, the playing back and forth with time. Um, so one of the things that I mm-hmm. tell my students to do when, we, when we're when we engaging and looking at a parallel scene, of, of which this would be an example, is that always there's a slight difference the second time. It's the mm-hmm. same, but a little bit different. And so you pay attention to what the differences are. So in this case, in this, these three chapters, we also have two couples but it's a different second couple. It's not uh sit in charity. It's the daughter and her mm-hmm. husband mm-hmm. and, and watching that play back and forth and the way that they look at the daughter, I've not forgotten her name. What is it? Hallie? Hallie.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Hallie. They're looking at Hallie and it's charity's face, but it's kinder. It's softer. Like that's, those are definitely poignant, deliberate things. Um, are we about to see a softer side of charity in, in this section? Mm -hmm. Than we have seen before, Um, especially when I put that with um, Larry's own comment, which I found that was the question I was asking myself. So I was so glad that Larry articulated it, which was that there are so many kind things I could be remembering about charity. Why is it that I'm remembering the bad moments? Mm -hmm. Right. So we have that very in-depth scene of her not acting very well or punishing Sid for her own reasons, which he later says maybe he misinterpreted that. Maybe that was her idea of making him useful. Who you know. He said something like it wouldn't be the first time she had done something terrible with the best motives. Uh, and then and then immediately to go from that to like a summary, though a summary of her great kindness to Sally when Sally was ill, right? And then he's like, why, you know, well, that was the same question I'm asking. Why are we seeing these intense microscopic moments of the bad parts of Charity's life and just, you know, summarizing what is really extraordinary acts of kindness? Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One thing I liked is, A similarity, I suppose, is um, some of the references to to sight. So at the beginning of chapter one, he get he he's taught you know there's the whole thing about the trout, but then he says my eyes Mm -hmm. are open, I'm awake, every detail is sharp as I've seen for the first time, yet familiar too. And then in this next chapter one, there's this thing about Sally trying to see, like Sally's senses trying to operate. She's first she's trying to breathe, and then. It says, she started to say, doesn't it seem a little odd? And then he says, and then I saw her eyes focus on something beyond and below. Um, mm-hmm. And then he talks about uh, Hallie and Mo making a striking pair. So, like, this, this senses the, the, um, the way, um, the particular experience of trying, to, um, trying to, to understand what's going on around you. It was a little different. Sally's experience and his experiences were similar but different, which I think is really interesting and um, structurally. And then Mm -hmm. Sally, of course, is trying to breathe. She's trying to see, she's trying to breathe, but it's much more challenging for her. Um, Whereas he, um, and it even talks about like the idea of in part one of chapter one, chapter one, part one, talks about um, as if someone who couldn't see before but can see now. But Mm -hmm. Sally, she's still kind of, her quote disability is still there it's not she's not healed from it if that makes sense mm-hmm. so yes that's, that's, well that's and
1: to mm-hmm. your to it to elaborate on that there's also multiple references in both chapters to the distortion of sight that the, the rainbow refracting yeah. through yeah. the glass of water mm-hmm. um i think he's sees larry sees um holly's eyes uh, that look like SIDS, but Sid wears Mm -hmm. glasses and there's like, so there's, there's this kind of sense of slight distortion, uh, of what it is that they see in the light that's coming to them.
0: And also I like the idea of things coming into, in and out of focus.
1: Yes. Oh, that's good.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And that's kind of one of the things memory Mm -hmm. that happens to us with memory, right? Things coming in and out of focus. Like we feel like we see something the way, like we feel like we're remembering it properly. We're seeing it properly. And then it kind of like fades on us. Right. Like maybe I'm not remembering that the right way. Yes. And that seems to be like that goes and back to what you guess, just said about it, about how he looks at, um, charity. Right. Like, why do I only, why am I only remembering this? Right. It's like kind of an incomplete vision, like incomplete remembrance. Go on. Right. Sorry.
3: right. If, if I had to, you know, uh, this, this goes back to the earlier question. My, my gut, if I had to guess when I get to the end, what will I say the soul of this book is I suspect it's going to have to do something with memory. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm. Um, it, it, it is true that memory sort of crafts reality, right?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: There's a line here earlier on. This is slightly off topic. But there's a line on page 200, first, on the second page of chapter one, and he almost offers it as an aside. Um, and he says, um, he says, I saw her hand, the half-clenched one, fold over each bent back and turn, pressing, and it struck me in a way it had never struck me before. Why not? Why ever not? How touching and attractive the gestures of human affection are. Mm -hmm. um that little aside that how touching and attractive the gestures of human affection are that's i think going back to the idea of a soul Mm -hmm. that might be one of the lines that for me captures one of the things that is at the soul of this book um
3: and also might be the answer to why larry remembers charity being a jerk but not charity being kind like maybe maybe he just doesn't notice
2: yeah, there's those a subtlety to acts,
3: it. Those, those acts of kindness. I mean, it's true. Acts of kindness don't usually loom large like when someone's a public jerk.
2: Yeah. When
1: someone ruins your nice night, you remember that, right? Right. Yeah, which makes me think, again, there's something that isn't yet revealed that, because throughout this whole book, we've talked many times in the last few weeks on these podcasts about how Larry unconsciously reveals himself. Angelina, you've pointed out several times he's withholding something, he's keeping something back. The way he speaks with restraints about Sally, that there's there is something yet coming. I if I were to go out on a limb, I would say charity, there's a wound in their relationship that is not yet repaired that he believes that charity is the cause of. And that's why he's remembering that that's the answer to the question that he can't even tell right. because he is subconsciously revealing himself. Mm. So that and I see that in both of these chapters there's there's something that yet that has not yet been said something that happened between these two
0: couples. Another this is related but mm-hmm. um not perhaps obviously um, another similarity is the use of tense. So huh. early on, at the beginning of chapter one, there's a lot of present tense, right? The air is as familiar as the room. Sally is still sleeping. The door creaks as I ease it open. No one is up in the Lane compound. And then, of course, he goes back in his remembrances, and here we're getting some of that as well. And even like present tense, thinking about Hallie, it is it is hard for Hallie to look grave. Um, huh. But then, on the other hand, it's also presented as a remembrance. Sally called from inside. Right. Um, she started to say. So there's a this at times he's using the present tense as he did earlier. And at times he's using the past tense. And the past tense implies that we've still got it's a, you know, there's layers of memory here, of course. Because some of it's taking like I almost wonder if this Mm -hmm. like where is it that he's like when he's telling the story, where is he telling it?
2: Hmm.
0: Is what happens at the beginning when he's walking, is he remembering all the interludes, the past interludes? While he's walking around, um, and then we're getting back to the beginning here, and then we have we have another flashback. The things he's doing with the with the time timeline, I think, are really interesting. Yeah,
3: yeah, you're right because we have another reference here of that he needs to write the story. This is the second time. We've, we've seen that. And of course, you're right. I hadn't thought of that before, but we don't know how much time has passed from these quote-unquote present-day scenes to when he's actually writing it. Like, you know, I don't know if we'll get to the end and fast forward another 40 years. Now I sit down to write to remember that sad summer when Charity, you know, was on Death's Door or something. Yeah. So you, I don't even know yet how many layers of time and narrative are happening here.
0: Part of me wonders if you could view book one like, if you should view book two as a completely different book in some ways. Like, if okay, book so one ends with so much for the to dream me. of man. And so, his first remembrances are a flashback there. And that's the first book. And it's almost like the second book is another book because now what was the present tense previously right. is a remembrance now.
3: right Right. And it did feel different to me in this section. I could not articulate probably better than that, but it felt different. I liked it better. I felt like I got more insight into who the characters are. I got a little more into their inner world. I've been thinking a lot since last week's podcast about that. A lot of this might have to do with the fact that I don't feel an intense and emotional connection to people. And that that's a deliberate narrative device Hmm. that he's not, he's not, there's a lot of scenes here that could be played out for pathos, but he didn't you know?
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And he says, I'm not going to do that for the pathos of it. Cause, and and he also, but he also says, I'm going to do the opposite of what you expect. And that he's like essentially saying, I'm going to keep you at arm's length. And so it's hard to, you have to kind of push his arm. And and
3: again, I might get to the end and be like, brilliantly done. That's exactly what you should have done. I'm so happy you with, you know, you made me wait till Christmas morning to unwrap the present. But right now (laughs) I'm two weeks before Christmas saying, I'm on it. I know that's a bicycle under the tree. Give it to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) David, I really like what you just said that I got a little lost, but I I want to go back to that. You said that the first part has to do with the dream of man. And I loved that. And I keep thinking throughout this whole book, I kept thinking about two little sentences on page 12 in the first chapter of part one. And he says, leave a mark on the world Instead, the world has left marks on us. That I keep thinking about throughout the whole course of the novel, which goes back to what I was talking about about learning to love. And you said, um, "Well, it's kind of just a restatement of French." I don't remember what it was that you said. You, you just said it's about friendship. I really would say that friendship is, in some ways, just the metaphor for love. Like that. That what he's saying in this is that. We think that we can change the world, right? Academics tend to be idealists at the beginning. We think we can change the world, but we couldn't. The world changed us. And yet here we are back again, dealing with memories, sorting through memories and complicated emotions after the world has marked us. And again, choosing to love these same people. And that, I think, ties so much of all of these conversations together. Angelina noticing how much memory plays a part in this. Um, and I, I, I think that's what he's saying in the first part. This is when I thought I could leave a mark on the world. Mm. And then after all mm. of this loss, now I'm sorting through how the world has left its mark on me and on us, mm. on my wife, yes, and on I these, our that. best friends. Mm. go ahead Well, and and that's
3: why just to agree with you that's why part one ends the way it does that that they have yes the height if you want to you know plot the story structure it it ends in that moment of ascendance they have plotted out the future we're going to stay in this home this is how it's all going to be and then boom right right our plans are to nothing because sally has polio and you know we're not even going to see our child for the next nine months and nothing is going to ever be the same right
2: yeah
0: the and this all happens to borrow a line from earlier in the book in such a way that the first surprise is followed by an immediate recognition of inevitability
2: Hmm. which
0: which ties to he says it on 195 at the end of book one, part one, however you want to put it, which I think is really could be a really interesting conversation. He says, good fortune, contentment, peace, happiness have never been able to deceive me for long. I expected the worst and I was right so much for the dream of man. So he's like, it's funny because you, he's also kind of saying the obvious of what he said earlier, the opposite, Mm -hmm. I mean, like you expect something to happen and then the worst happens. But then here he's like, actually I expected the worst to happen anyway because I don't, I'm never going to allow myself to get deceived by, you know, Peace, happiness, and so forth. Um, so, what he's doing there, even there's the narrative structure, and then there's our narrative as a person,
1: right? Right. And how which he I think, feels about it, which I think is true of being human. I mean, I think that we can all relate to that when we say, "I, I never expected to be happy," but then when it comes down to it, we're always surprised by our suffering, right? But then we're also equally surprised by our happiness and we don't know how to reconcile that. And so then we write, you know, this guy's writing this lovely novel about it, but that it, it's all that's all still true. Like it doesn't really contradict itself. It's just part of that experience of being human of I didn't know if I was going to be happy or not. And I don't know how to deal with with all of it. I always expected just all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. You can position yourselves where you can position yourself where nothing is really unexpected, right?
1: Right. Yeah.
3: Or it's the kind of thing you say after the fact though, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like there's almost a little bitterness there because he was deceived into thinking yeah,
0: they were on right. a path
1: to happiness. Right.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. There's some bitterness in, in it. <laughs>
1: Nobody reading the book would have expected, other than for the first chapter, nobody would have expected Sally. Like that, I mean that they, he played. I think I think he wrote, wrote that beautifully. The focus on sin and Charity and their marriage, oh and absolutely, all, and then all of a sudden it's Sally who's devastated. Her body is you're like, whoa! I I did not see that coming.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's why you know I think there's some value. I mean, obviously that is the value of having read it before, because. Mm-hmm. You can look back and you can say, well, no, this is why we're not really getting to know Sally because it ha- if we knew if Sally was too much of a character, we'd all be like, well, something, something's going to happen to Sally. Right? Like if she's huh. the sort of either she's your protagonist oh, or your sidekick or whatever, right. then right. it becomes the possibility of that happening is not a surprise. Right.
3: You're right. And when you're thinking in terms of the character development, Sally has not been pushing the movement forward. Right These other characters have, and now she is though, by, by in a passive way, by falling ill, now she is directing everybody's life.
0: Right. right. so her getting sick is the reversal of expectation because of all the characters for the drama to happen to, for the dramatic like, yes. moment to happen to, she's the least likely in a traditional you know, based on the kind of expectations traditional narrative offers us. So her getting sick is a reversal of expectation. It's not charity who in some ways, we are led to, we we have been led by his memories to feel like in some ways, almost all three of those- Charity's gonna blow this up. That's what
2: I thought, right? exactly. Mm -hmm. Or
0: they could deserve that something would happen to them. We have right. no, re, we have like no sense of like no judgment of Sally, like that whether or not she deserves something like this until it happens. And you're like, wait, she, she doesn't deserve that. So not She's getting the best
1: one. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: her, so not knowing her very well, um, him hiding her sort of in a sense allows us to feel when that happens, the injustice of it happening.
2: Mm-hmm. But whereas well, yes, if we've then- gotten
0: to know her better, perhaps then we know her flaws and the injustice is felt less deeply. Go ahead, Hmm. sorry.
3: Well, just the way he set that up with we're in the Garden of Eden and the serpent is here. And then he's at the same time talking about Charity's, you know, outrageous behavior and how she's ruining their good time. Like I just, I thought Charity was gonna, you know, I'm reading that whole section with Charity, why are you ruining everybody's good time? The the natural expectation is that Charity's gonna blow this up. And so for it to have been, for him to have, well, he quickly reversed it. So before we know Sally is ill, he has Charity be repentant and kind and, mm-hmm. and, yeah, and that's,
0: a great point. We, that's a great point. We're not
3: angry with charity anymore. Charity has come around and there are like, been some
0: reconciliation.
3: Yes. And she's, you know, not just acting repentant, but says it and tell is very, you know, I'm sorry. I ruined everybody's good time. I'm a jerk. I'm gonna stop now. Um, and let's all laugh at how stupid I was. And then, and then <laughs> like it, it, he did it in such a way that I almost forgot that I was expecting something to blow up in this section. Almost like, well, I thought it was going to happen, then it didn't. And now we're all lulled into this little, just like what he said, right? We were deceived into this lull of it's all going to work out somehow. And then that happens in a lot of good narratives. I wish I could think of an example right now, but I can't think, I can't tell you how many times. I know that someone's going to die in a book, but I get so lulled into the narrative. I'm like, I must have read that wrong. <laughs> I'm, somebody must have told me something that is not true about this book. There's no way this character is going to die. You know, like, well, there's a or sense even of- if it's a first person narrator and you know, at the beginning, something bad happens, you start thinking, oh no, no yeah
0: well right like you think about like a mystery story or a crime novel or whatever when it's a first person detective and you're like wait this person is telling the story so nothing can have happened to them but the whole time you're on <laughs> your edge of your seat like what's gonna happen yeah. to them yes <laughs> that, that's the beauty of a well-crafted you know narrative um,
3: definitely so yeah he so he he doubly reverses the expectations of that chapter right so charity ascends and sally descends in terms of character arts hmm mm-hmm.
0: So, um,
3: Which is interesting, then, because it's it's the two women, then, who are dominating the action of this
1: book. Oh, yeah, matriarchy, right? Don't Which I guess say they th- talk about that a lot, right? 200, the matriarchy simply unhinged its jaw and swallowed him as it swallows all sons-in-law.
3: <laughs> it was interesting, too, that they were able to... Uh, so he's able to basically speak about the dynamic between... Sid in charity and Sally and Larry by looking at the dynamics of the two marriages of the children mm. right and how their her lives had become separate and Hallie saying why doesn't she come around anymore I mean it's basically like what she didn't have a phone or phone doesn't work you yeah. can't send a text like you know those kinds of conversations I've been busy really you too busy for a text <laughs> mm. yeah and so but, but it's the same sort of idea where Hallie says I just expected our kids would grow up together
2: mm-hmm yeah.
3: And and they didn't. So it's it's mm-hmm. it's a very interesting like, double of what happened with the two main couples, who also thought they would all grow up together and didn't.
0: Mm-hmm. But and then I like what he does there with that Mo character
2: mm-hmm.
0: because he talks about how Mo's character he has the sensitivity that is more acute than his muscular coordination. Um, he says, you know, it's kind of the whole "don't judge a book by its cover" sort of. Mm-hmm. concept right but he says you have to read his books and articles to know how bright he is and you have to know him personally to comprehend i love this how much gentleness and consideration his clumsiness obscures and in some way well, didn't you-
2: I'm that's sorry, a mirror yes that's for what sally hmm.
0: um hmm. but but also i think um it's i i love the idea of charity's daughter being married to someone like that hmm. as if sort of taking him under her wing in some ways almost um anyway angelina go ahead and say what you were gonna say
3: no i'm, I'm just agreeing with you that it was it, it was uh some of the thematic elements were coming into focus in, in that marriage and in that particular dynamic There, there's also a little bit of the charity and sid there too you know yes yeah. Because Sid also has a dual nature, and you don't know him. And the whole, very well done scene of them walking around um, the shed, the workshop, Mm -hmm. and then the study, and just the whole idea that this hidden life of Sids and this hidden potential. And uh, I mean, that was brilliant. That whole—he's always preparing and then cleaning up, but never doing the thing.
0: Yeah. 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 His line. Um, she says, a rustic Newton, where his says Principia. Yep. There was something so close to contempt in her voice that she made me mad. Is it compulsory to be one of the immortals? I said. Yeah, I think that's, that's a... so good. <clears throat> so good. And I think people who dabble in the arts um, or view in themselves any kind of gifting or skill are often sort of either worn down by the fact that they'll never be one of the immortals or constantly striving, you know, to be like striving for the sun, <laughs> right? Yep. Dettlest style.
2: Yes.
3: Yeah. To see that second generation judgment of Sid, that was hard on, on Larry. Mm-hmm.
0: It's an, like an inherited judgment in some ways.
3: Well, you know, the she's her mother's daughter, I guess they'd say.
0: Yeah. Right. Which well, Sally, I mean, Charity was as well.
1: And they talk yes. about that and address it directly in the next chapter about how the women marry the same kind of man. And then put that, what does she say? Put them in a think house. Isn't that the phrase? Yes, because that that's what Aunt Emily did to that's her husband. That's what Aunt Emily did. And she's following in a long line of tradition. That's, they talk about that earlier in the book, that she did what her mother did. And so this is a generational matriarchy of marrying very intelligent men with something that keeps them from the, you know, the women feel like they have to bring out in their husbands and then just end up squashing them. I suppose it, they would say that the men
3: lack drive, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that the, what they're giving their men is drive, which I guess Larry would say really is just a crushing force.
0: It's, it's interesting well, so what is the what is the line you just said that they lock him? The, I mean, they the put him in the
1: think house. house. Well, let me see if we can find
0: that. That is extremely reminiscent of Sally's own, you know, being trapped <gasps> in the chair, the being trapped, iron trapped in the irons.
3: Huh. Oh, right. And in that case, then Charity's attention to Sally would be very parallel to her attention to Sid, right? You know, she she's gonna she's gonna stand by her crippled friend, husband.
0: But but what's ironic is, or I don't know if it's ironic, in some ways she is the iron lung yes. or Sid, but she can't free Sally from her, you know, right. Prison.
1: Right. Yeah, that's true. Well, she they need each other. She says they need mm-hmm. you know, charity needs to be needed, which maybe that's the reflection in her name
3: i have known people like that in my life who i have found to be extremely oppressive and hard to be around unless there's a crisis (laughs) and sometimes they almost create crises because they're so good in them (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know um i don't know i think about that flannery o'connor line from a good man is hard to find of you know she'd be a good woman if there was someone to shoot her in the face every minute of her life like right like there are those kinds of people right like in this sort of dire circumstances, they rise to this incredible level.
0: Yeah, they're not so great just in the everyday, moving along, plodding along, but when something bad happens, they're like the person you'd want on your side.
3: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, right. clearly charity, I mean, gosh, look, I hate to out myself here, but I love you guys. I'm not coming sit by you in the iron lung. <laughs> right. the, I'll send you right. some flowers. I'll pray for you. I'm probably not going to get up my life and camp out in the chair in your hospital room. So,
0: why so, right. well, ask- will I
3: try to run your life otherwise? <laughs> so that's like yeah, an so added good moment. good and the
0: bad, right? Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. okay, so... <sighs> Uh, one thing let's look at chapter two then briefly we only have a little bit of time left um there's one scene in particular that i was wondering what you guys thought of um and it's the one where they're it's back years earlier um sally has been dealing with her illness they're they're all back together and it's the scene where they have dinner and charity insists that Sid do the dishes by himself that um he even tries to sort of explain it, give an intellectual explanation for why she might do that and say, it's nonsense, but at least I can, maybe that's what she thought. Like that is actually helping sit out. It's giving him purpose or something. Mm-hmm. Right. So I got to thinking, um, how she, she wants to help everybody. Right. But, mm-hmm. but when, but when Larry tries to help her husband, she sort of rejects, His she like rejects his help. She insists that Sid do it by himself. Yes,
3: but later takes Larry's other kind of help, though right of getting him a job.
0: True, true, that's true. But I got to thinking, it's a very specific sort of personal question about that scene. If you were Larry, what would you have done there Mm -hmm. in that scene? So, so (laughs) she Sally sends or Charity sends him off, sends Sid off, and. Refuses to let, um, to to let Larry help. I mean, what, how would you have responded to that? I'm mean, I, just a very personal sort of question. I'm cool. just curious. I guess you... it
3: depends how terrified of charity I was. That's my real answer. I would <laughs> yeah. have been very uncomfortable. I would not have enjoyed the evening. I would have been thinking about Sid in the kitchen the whole time. Yeah, I definitely would have argued back the way Larry did. Of oh, come on! In five minutes, we can get this cleaned out. Everybody pitches in. Whether or not I would have had the courage to defy Charity really depends on how personally terrified I'd be of her.
0: Hmm. What about you, Heidi? What would you have done?
1: I would have gone. I, I would have done what Larry did, but because, and I think that it's far more as you as you're pointing out. There's so much going on in this scene, right? There's and Larry is making a decision partly to defy charity, partly just to win, right? That that's the thing about Larry. He wants to, he wants to be stronger. He wants to show her that a man can be stronger than her. Also though, he's making a choice of loyalty to his friend, right? He has, it's a, it's a, it's solidarity with Sid. I know what you're going through. And And I think underneath that, and here's why I think I would have gone in and helped is because what she said is so revealing when she kept saying over and over again, we have an agreement. I cook and he does the dishes. We have an agreement. And as soon as she said that, I thought she's punishing him because they had an agreement that he was going to get tenure Mm -hmm. and he failed.
0: So So, so he's kind of allowing himself to be whipped.
1: Yes. And that I think... I, I think that particular phrase I would, and if you're asking me what I would have done and I would have heard that phrase and known what it meant. And that's the reason why I would go to the kitchen is to say, I I didn't, I never agreed to the terms of this agreement. You maybe did, but I didn't. And I'm going to show you that I never agreed to that.
0: It seems like that's sort of what Larry saying in some way, because he's then saying you, it didn't work out for you, but it wasn't your fault. You know, right the 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 dream of man died. This war happened. It wasn't your fault that you didn't. It weren't able to keep you under the bar. And I'm here. And the whole time,
1: he's saying the whole time, I never accepted Charity's agreement. I always thought you should go be a poet.
2: Yeah, and I don't
1: even want to give you the job at Dartmouth. I don't want you to have that job. I want you to stay here and write poetry. But like that, so I think this is his kind of barbaric yop, right? Like his way of saying, I was never on Charity's side. I didn't agree to this. Mm, so I'm going to help you do the dishes.
0: I could never, under any circumstances, have ever been friends with her, with Charity. <laughs> so that's would, your
3: answer. There would be no dishes to wash. I never would have been in
0: well, that house. <laughs> so I got thinking about it because my response would have been, every time Larry's instinct is to, I. there is no circumstance, whether it was in the woods or in the, that, I would not have, Got in an argument with her, Mm -hmm. because like we've had friends like or you know friends like this where I I am I I am 100% someone who would argue with her, Mm -hmm. and we would not have been able to be good friends. But I think that what that's where Sally comes into it, right? Because she's the one who Sally in a way keeps. It seems like Charity is holding the friendship together, Mm -hmm. but in some ways I think it's Sally because Sally's the one that can give the wordless look to to Larry that says don't fight her. Mm -hmm. Don't be the one who antagonizes her, you know, be the peacemaker here. And so she, she, that, then that helps keep the peace, right? It keeps it from being an all out war in those bad moments. And my instinct, like I think Larry's, it it seems to be, would be to go to war. (laughs) Even I'm all right at making up later, but I definitely would have argued with her about stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, But so I think Uh, that's where, you know, I think anyway, go ahead.
3: Right. No, my personality is definitely the peacekeeper. I'd have been so uncomfortable and I would have not wanted to escalate it. And I think mm-hmm. I might have also taken the position of this isn't my battle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. You know, you well, go and you I go, think, get in the middle wise. of Somebody
3: else's marital
1: spats at your, at your own peril. I think that's wise, which is why I think, let's say, if you were to ask that question last week, David, and say, would you have un- unpacked everything and, uh, when they went on the camping trip, I'd probably say yes. Like, then in that case, I'd be a peacemaker because, to your point, Angelina, it's not my battle. But thinking like Larry, I think he sees this as his battle. He has always wanted Sid to be able to do what he loved. And so I think he's saying, I do have a dog in this fight.
0: Yeah. I would, there this would have, fight, been, there would have yeah. been no unpacking on, if I had been yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Unless, my, unless Bethany, Woo.
0: unless Bethany gave me the look, right?
1: Right, right.
0: But that might be a that might be. I'd be interested to hear from other men about that because, like, sure, um, mm-hmm. and I, you know, maybe other women as well. I suppose, but I would have, I would have been like that. I would have just said to her face, "That's that's nonsense." I saw it. Like, don't worry about it. I, this. is ridiculous. I would have. Mm-hmm. I I, I would have been. It probably wouldn't have been a good moment for me, honestly. Right. Um, one thing I was thinking about mm-hmm. the, the, the interaction between these two spouses is that it talks a lot about, and it kind of culminates in the, the camping scene at the end of part one, where there's a lot of talk about Sid's physical prowess, mm-hmm. Charity's beauty, um, even like the idea of fertility. Um, there's a lot of references to um, them having mul- all these children Mm -hmm. And that being contrasted with the sort of, well, that being contrasted with um, Larry and Sally only being able to have the one child. And so there's this very different type of intimacy that's implied between the two couples, which is, which I think is um, fascinating because on the one hand, Sally, I mean, well, Sid and Charity seem like they managed to have, you know, enough intimacy Uh, that in like physical intimacy to have a lot of children and to like really, really into each other in that way. But then in other ways, they can't, they can barely hold it together. Right. But Mm -hmm. Sally and, and Larry are, you know, her illness limits their physical intimacy in a way that is. Right. You know, sort of profound, but then they have this other profound intimacy that is tied to, to, um, in some ways it's a physical intimacy because they have to, to, she in particular has to lean on him and he has to be willing to, um, support her physically in, in ways. It's a that different is,
3: kind of intimacy. That's a right. nurturing intimacy. Whereas yeah, yeah. Sid and Charity are all fire, right? Yeah. They're either trying There's to kill each other or they're making it, yeah. love. Yeah, like that's, that's they're all fire. But Larry and Sally, it's more, it's a nurturing intimacy, right? So There's a tenderness.
0: I yeah. gotta tell you, a, I gotta give a story. I love the animal thing there that you said, the fire thing. Because <laughs> we were at, we were at the zoo actually with my kids. <laughs> Oh, man, where the, is this going? No, it's the Sorry, classic game right? right? <laughs> of animals, right? Where, the you know, you walk across... So we walk it, this place called Tiger World. And it's a very, like, rustic out-in-the-country place. It's a preserve where they, like, rescue animals and things like that. And so they have multiple couples of tigers and lions and things like that there. And so they have this couple of lions in this cage. And we walk up to it. And exactly what you would think is happening, right yes and so my kids are like those
3: awkward parenting moments right. yeah
0: so they don't they don't they're like oh they're fighting or whatever i don't know yep you know daddy and I why was are like, they yeah. fighting Yep, yeah exactly but then <laughs> the, the most hilarious thing was literally 10 seconds later they were fighting <laughs> like the two lions were literally fighting they went from the other thing who <laughs> were literally fighting and growling and like snarling and scratching at each other
2: it's sin and charity if
0: i ever own two lions now I'm, that's what i'm gonna do and sit and in <laughs> <laughs> <So that's like, laughs>
3: the current lion preserve the first yeah, exactly. two are gonna be sit in charity <laughs>
0: exactly i just and i thought well that is hilarious at the moment i thought that and now it applies to this book so take your kids to the <laughs> and you'll have anecdotes for your podcast
3: that, that's exactly exactly the right conclusion to that story.
0: Well, that's my final thought because we are running out of time. So I need final thoughts from each of you before we see the studio for the next uh, podcast that has to get recorded today.
3: My final thought is that Graham contacted me and was very kind in telling me that there was no pressure to fall in love with this book. And I said, but I feel like you set me up on a date with your best friend and it's not going really well. (laughs) And I feel bad. And he's like, it's okay if the date goes bad. And I said, but he's your friend. And he said, I have a lot of weird friends. <laughs> so, so Graham has given me permission to not go on a second date, but I'm still like, we are the third course of this meal. I'm giving him a best shot.
0: But you could still perhaps like be friendly if you guys were at a party together.
3: Right. You may not fall in right. love with I didn't guys. throw my drink at him, but I don't think this is going to end with an engagement.
0: <laughs> hey, you know, you can only be engaged to so many people. Um, <laughs>
3: Words of wisdom.
0: You're right. (laughs) You're right. I only have
3: 10 fingers. I mean, come on.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Let it be a lesson to you all. Never try to be engaged to more than 10 people. Heidi, final thoughts. So much.
1: All right. I, I, I have a final thought. I wrote it down even before we got on the podcast because I didn't want to be caught without one. So um, you cannot pre-prepare final thought. I can. I can pre-prepare. This is my pre. This is my pre-prepared charity, perfectly packed final thought. This is because we didn't get to something you
0: wanted to talk about.
1: No, it's labeled final thought right here. You are.
2: Dude, are you I actually have two options. Right now, oh my gosh! I
1: have two options in case one came up in the
2: conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, this better be good. All right. Well, I don't know if it's that good. Um, okay, so it it is. Dun, 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 how much Sid turned into charity with his study and his uh, workshop i just thought that was so interesting how Hmm. all of a sudden everything's perfectly labeled like he just larry describes the perfectly curated environment of the shed before he says it was sid and i thought it was charity Hmm. it's like wow charity's even in all up in the workshop
0: i think that's the poet in him coming out
1: yes and then he i agree I, i actually completely agree with that and then he said this is that, um, that it was Sid. And, um, so I, that that's kind of how he has managed his anxiety. Uh, maybe it's to escape from her. There's all kinds of reasons that could be, but that this idea of him kind of trans, uh, taking on some of her characteristics while still resenting her for them. And then the rhyming dictionary, was just so mm-hmm. the pathos of that of it shoved in the back so that she couldn't see and and how he says how much he what was the word it's a power it's a strong word he almost says like he despised him or is embarrassed for him mm. when he finds mm. the rhyming dictionary term yeah. so that yeah that was striking. He, Whoa! That but just, the shed was yeah. also a gigantic impotent image, right? Yes, yes,
3: exactly. Because it's all ready to go, but then there, nothing gets built in the shed. No, you know, well, again, that
1: preparation he without, yes, 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 which so, is,
3: and, but it, but it speaks to your point about charity's influence over Sid. Like everything in his life now is just—he doesn't produce. He didn't get the right. job. He doesn't build the chair. Right. He doesn't really write the poems. Yeah. yeah yes except he has a bunch of kids so there you go
0: (laughs) but we haven't seen um we haven't seen late in life sid yet and so that's one thing that's all set up for us to see both of them she's about she's you know nearing the end and we've only heard that he's not doing well because of that so um we haven't seen you know where where is he actually emotionally mentally and all that leading into the end of the story into into the quote unquote present day in terms of the that's world right, of the story that's right. so that, with we've that. only
3: seen him yeah through through larry through through the through the uh, the scenery and through his daughter's words hmm. i did notice that
0: yeah. All right. Well, with that, thank you to you both for a lively conversation. I enjoyed this one. Um,
3: oh, I did too. Thanks, guys. No,
0: that was great. We'll be back with more next week, uh, more discussion of crossing to safety. Uh, remember, the is the thing. Subscribe, rate, review. The Daily Poem, subscribe, rate, review. This show, subscribe, rate, review. Um, and if you <laughs> uh, want to support the show, we would obviously appreciate that over at patreon.com slash closereads. Join the Facebook group, head over to closereadspods.com and join the newsletter Um, I think that's all the business I have to attend to, but thank you so much for listening for Angelina, for Heidi, for all of us here at the close reads podcast network. I'm David happy reading. And we will talk to you next week.